Hello? As you can see, we haven't left the podium for Boris. <laughs> and there is a swear jar. If anybody mentions the word Brexit, I get a fiver. Um, so as I said, this is, uh, this is one of our Engage services. So we like to do this uh, twice a year where we sort of pause... Uh, or we're between series, and we want to um, bring a panel um, together and ask a few questions, get a few answers. Um, perhaps you uh, are not yet a Christian, uh, you wouldn't yet call yourself a Christian, uh, but you've been coming along, um, and there may be some questions that you feel are quite fundamental that aren't addressed each and every week. Um, and on Wednesday evenings, there has been a series running here in the back of the church called The Big Questions. Um, and so we want to pick up on a few of those questions that have been asked and consider some of the answers that people, most common answers that people uh, have given, uh, and then ask Danny and Gareth to, to give us some help with those questions. So both Danny and Gareth are committed Christians, uh, both with a professional background in science, one computing and the other in medicine and genetics. So I'm just going to ask them the questions, uh, and, and they're going to give us some help with, with the answers. So first question is to, to Danny, um, and that is uh, one of the first questions that's being dealt with on the Wednesday evening sessions, and that is, how do we explain the existence of the universe? So quite a big question to start with. And the most common answer that has been given um, over the, the weeks uh, has been that we have a naturalistic explanation, the Big Bang. Science has given us an answer. Is that not finished the question? Is there anything more to think about? So how do you explain the existence of the universe? PowerPoint. Right, well, I'm, I'm sorry that I didn't have the, the opportunity to join the groups this year. I was in the groups last year, uh, and some of the, the answers that were given were very interesting. Um, Tim, you mentioned the Big Bang Theory as though that explains everything. It's probably just worth pointing out, most of you are young here this evening, but if we went back to the 60s, the 1960s, uh, the Big Bang Theory was, no, was not accepted was not the accepted theory until about that time. For about 2,000 years before that, the belief was that the universe has always existed, the sort of steady state theory, as it was called. And so there was no question. People didn't ask, how did it begin? But as the evidence began to come in that uh, galaxies are fleeing from us at an ever-increasing rate, they thought, well... If it's expanding, then it must have been much smaller, in fact, must have begun. And so the idea was put forward, maybe the universe did have a beginning. Now, at first, this was resisted by the top scientists, precisely because it was too close to the Bible. Because the Bible begins, says, in the beginning, that there was a beginning. Science did not accept that until relatively recently. But the evidence is actually proved uh, or is now consistent with what the Bible says. But now science has a new problem. Where did the Big Bang come from? Where did all the material in the universe that we have 
Where did it come from? It must come from somewhere. And one of the consistent principles of science is you cannot get something from nothing. The conservation of energy, the conservation of momentum, so many of the fundamental laws of science are that you cannot get something from nothing. Now, Stephen Hawking tried to explain the origin of the universe like this. Let me just read what he wrote. Because there is such a law as gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. One of the top scientists in the world recently deceased. What do you think of that statement? I think anyone with a basic knowledge of science can see serious flaws and faults in that statement. First of all, when you think of the law of gravity, it only describes how things move. It only describes the behavior of planets, of particles, anything that has mass. Gravity, the, theory, the law of gravity doesn't force material to do anything. It only describes the behavior of stuff which actually exists. If nothing existed, you could have no law of gravity. Gravity cannot produce something out of nothing. And secondly, if you have nothing, genuine nothing, how could you have the law of gravity? Even the law of gravity is something. Mm. So if you have absolutely nothing, uh, you cannot have the law of gravity. So as someone said about that statement, that nonsense remains nonsense, even when it is spoken by uh, an expert. <laughs> and all attempts that I know of atheistic scientists so far to explain the existence of the universe lead to similar logical fallacies. And I have to say that the best logical explanation so far, which I've come across, which does not require us to believe in nonsense, is what the Bible says, that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, that the universe had a beginning and that it was created by a vastly intelligent God who existed before the universe did and has always existed. Hmm. Thank you. Thank you. I've heard it said, um, no matter how hard I look at my bank account, the laws of mathematics are never going to increase the number. So the laws of science can't create things. They can only describe what is already there. Unless you have creative accounting. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Well, the, the second question is very much in the same theme, um, and, and that is sort of narrowing down, thinking less more about the, the, the universe at large and more in particular life here on Earth. Um, so I'll take that to you, Gareth. How do you explain the existence of, of life then here on Earth? We have a universe. Come, let's come and look at life. Yeah, I was very interested in Danny's quote of Stephen Hawking. I mean, Stephen was a really eminent scientist and uh, certainly in my field of health sciences managed, uh, you know, with a, a very severe condition to produce a large amount of scientific output. And he did contribute a lot to science. But the last four words of that create itself from nothing as Danny said, is complete nonsense. But the problem is they were uttered by somebody who is eminent, somebody who is looked upon as having overcome adversity and maybe having deeper knowledge into how things are. But actually, the fundamental laws of logic and, and philosophy that you, you would you know, learn in your first day, things cannot create themselves out of nothing. Things have a cause, an effect is a cause. It doesn't just come about. So for something to create itself, and for something to create itself out of nothing, two bits of nonsense multiplied together. 
and it just reminds me that as a scientist, that I have a very important responsibility to try and not step outside my boundaries of expertise. Because uh, when you do into logic or philosophy, you start saying silly things. It's a wee bit like me saying to Danny's sister Helen, you know how to bake the uh, perfect cheesecake. Nonsense multiplied by nonsense will lead to a mess. <laughs> In science, we've a couple of things uh, that we use for it. Science isn't a religion. It isn't a personal force. It isn't some mystical thing. Science is, is just a tool. And when people say that science explains the origin and the purpose of life, it's a little bit like giving a child a spoon and telling her that there's going to be some ice cream. And she goes, no, I don't believe that. You've given me this, this thing, this tool that I have. This explains everything. This tool tells me that ice cream does not exist. Why are you inventing something else? I have this in my hand. It's a little bit like that with the tool of science. Science and scientists do two things when they look at life. They think, what are the general principles that we understand? And how does that apply? Can we use those general principles to explain what we see? We'll make theories and predictions. And if they happen to be right, we go, well, it seems to fit. That's why people talk about theory in science rather than necessarily complete fact. Because you can go to somewhere in the universe where actually the laws are a bit different. I need to revise your model. But the other thing that we do, and I think that will be very familiar to us, is this idea not of deduction from laws, but induction. Our own personal experience and examples, and trying to work up and see, how does that match up? So, for example, if I, you know, do something, and I'm playing around with something, and something happens to fit together and work, I go, oh, right, might that work in some other area? Now, when we look at life... The simplistic episode or idea is that, you know, you draw a world, there's seas and there's land, and that's okay. But as you start to zoom in, you begin to see continents, you begin to see mountains and trees and land masses. You go in and you see plants and animals and people, and then you go further and further and you see about body systems, about cells, molecules, atoms. And we have found, uh, certainly in health sciences, that the deeper and more small that you go, the more intricate things actually become. There are different, you know, levels of life, little single-celled organism to you or me. But the single-celled organism is really complicated. It isn't just, you know, things that are one or two bits that make it living. There are literally tens, if not hundreds of thousands of little molecular machines that actually create this cell and how it works and can adapt to an environment. We'll probably be looking at the cell in greater depth at at another series uh, in the new year. But what I see is I see things that become increasingly complex in even the simplest of life. And I see things that look as if they've been designed. So it looks like if I fiddle with something, something else in this organism will take over. My area of specialism is, is kidneys. And I know that if I take a kidney out of somebody, well, the other kidney will adapt. If I take two kidneys out, that organism dies unless you intervene in it. If I start taking out other things, the body gets worse very quickly. All these things are required for functioning. Our heart will probably beat two billion times in our lifetime. And if I think inductively, I'm looking at my own small area, and I think... What does it take to create life, to make life work in all the different environments? To me, 
I think an existence based purely on natural causes doesn't make any sense at all. In Northern Ireland, we're very familiar with the legacy of explosions and big bangs. They don't tend to create order. They don't tend to create things that are sustainable. They wreck and destroy. So I think inductively, my experience thinks, well, maybe there is some sort of creative power or force that's designing this. Then I apply this to what I see, and I go, yes, I see evidence of design in everything I look at in my work as a scientist and as a doctor. Thank you very much. Danny, do you want to come back well, on that? I'm, I'm a computer scientist and have been all my, my career. Um, and Gareth, you can maybe keep me right here, but as far as I understand, life, any form of life, is based on DNA. And DNA holds the genetic code. Is that right? That is a simple explanation, but yes. Okay, right. Well, when, I, when I hear people talk about genetic code, code my ear pricks up, because, in fact, both of them. Uh, <laughs> my ears prick up. Uh, because the, the information and the, the program that is stored in our DNA is amazing. Uh, my research area has been in speech recognition when there's a lot of background noise and in processing images and video, trying to recognize and analyze what's going on in the images. And yet the solution to that problem is somewhere in our DNA. We can all do that. There are thousands of very bright scientists around the world, computer scientists, trying to find a solution. And yet it is there in our DNA code. Whoever wrote the code in our DNA is a brilliant computer scientist. <laughs> now, over the years, I've taught, I think, literally thousands of first-year students at Queen's to program. Some of them are very bright, like Jonathan here. Some of them, you might say, well, they're semi-intelligent design rather than intellig fully intelligent design. And every practical class that I've held uh, is like an experiment in how to develop code. If there's a very intelligent designer, the solution comes about relatively quickly and it works. But what's very interesting is to look at students who really struggle with computer programming. And if there's a fault in it, they change it, they make random changes to the program. That's what it looks like to me. They take out a line and say, maybe this will make it work. And eventually they end up with nothing and it, it works in that it does nothing. But sometimes they say to me, as, the, dead, as the, the time comes towards the end of the class, could you just give me another half hour, I'll get it. And I, I feel like saying to them, if I gave you a billion years, you would never get it. Because once you're off on the wrong track, any changes, mindless changes that you make take you further and further away from anything useful. So this idea that somehow millions, as long as you have millions of years, you will eventually reach the solution. Every practical class that I've held in computer science tells me precisely hmm. the opposite. Hmm. I think yeah. that's interesting, Danny, as well, because, I mean, even in terms of the code, um, when I finished my uh, research from a genetics doctorate, and so probably about 14 years ago, we were very interested in seeing whether small changes in the three billion letters of the code that might account for why some people with diabetes get kidney disease and need to go on dialysis or transplant versus those who otherwise don't have kidney problems. And we didn't find anything, so I spent three years and, you know, I've got a small publication that something might be interesting, but we didn't find an answer. And now we're increasingly realised that it's not even so much the code 
that is the, um, the key. It's often the things that are attached to the code because there are things that are on top of the DNA that can be brought down for generations. So even though, for example, uh, you know, it used to be thought, well, I could you know, smoke 60 cigarettes a day, that wouldn't affect my offspring. Well, actually, it does. It doesn't affect the letters in my code necessarily that I pass on but it can affect the things that are stuck on to the code, if you like, the little post-it notes that are put on where the body says, hey, this guy's a bit of a smoker, we need to get the anti-cancer um, genes uh, activated, and that can be passed down. And so the whole direction of our research in kidneys and genetics in, in the labs here uh, changed to looking at these other, if you like, post-it notes that were put on, and this was something that we only really discovered in the past 15, 20 years, it, it's critical importance. So things just get more and more complicated. And despite the fact that we have sequenced the whole genome, we still haven't really found even a fraction of the answers we thought about in terms of human disease. And if we haven't done that, how much more complex is the real thing? Yeah. Well, that's scratching the surface, it sounds like to me. So that, that's very helpful. I, um you know, the third question kind of, you've touched on it, but um, it, it sounds to me a little bit like, um, you know, there, there, there could be someone who could say, okay, so um, science has now shown that there was a beginning and the, 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 that, that all the evidence points to the fact that the universe had a beginning. And it, it looks like when we look at the molecular detail of life that there's design. Um, are you just not given science enough time? So if given enough time, and obviously we've seen so many different things explained by science. Um, has modern science removed the, the need for God, or, 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 or is there a good chance that it, it will? Um, and, and, and is it just that we sort of uh, have gaps in our understanding, and we sort of say, okay, well, I don't understand, um, you know, how that happened, so God must have done it. Uh, is, is, that, is, that the, is that what you're saying here? This is, this is a difficult problem, um, and so God must have done it. So that's the idea that in the old days, if you couldn't understand something like thunder and lightning, you say, oh, that's God doing that. Sure. But now we understand the electrostatic principles and things and explain it. And the idea is that as we learn more and more, there'll be no gaps. Uh, yeah, and, and eventually, like, will, will science or has science started to negate uh, the role for God, uh, our belief in God? Well, people say that the gaps are closing. But actually, as, as people do more and more science, they're discovering more gaps. Mm. You know, Gareth will be more, tell you more about what happens inside the cell. When Charles Darwin came up with his theory of evolution, he thought a cell was a blob of protoplasm, which he didn't know what it was. But when you see just how fantastically complex and how brilliantly organized the cell is, that makes it, you know, it's a huge gap that has to be explained now that didn't exist before. Mm -hmm. And the more we discover uh, about even, you know, the way the universe is so finely tuned, sci scientists didn't know that mm. 50 years ago. And now they, they haven't a clue how to explain it. And, you know, these, these new gaps that are appearing have driven many atheists to come to believe that there is a God. If we could just expand a little bit on why I think science actually drives people to believe that there is a God. Let me give you an example. Supposing you were staying in a hotel in Belfast, okay, on your own. You have a room which you guard jealously. And on the first day, you put three 20-point notes on your bedside table. The next day, you put two more 20-point notes. On the third day, 
you count the money and you find that there's 60 pounds there. Now, you're a bit puzzled by this. What could have happened? If, if, you're, if you don't know arithmetic, if you're not good at arithmetic, you maybe don't see the problem. But if you follow the rules of arithmetic carefully, you realize something has gone wrong. Now, it could be spontaneous combustion of 20-pound notes, uh, but there's no evidence of that. And something, obviously, some law has been broken. Is it the law of arithmetic or the law of the United Kingdom? <laughs> and if you firmly believe that the laws of arithmetic are absolute, it drives you to the conclusion that your hotel room is not a closed system, that someone outside has intervened. And it is your faith in the laws, your belief in the laws, that drive you to that conclusion. <laughs> in the same way, Christians believe in the laws of science. And because we believe in the laws of science, that is driving us to the conclusion that this world is not a closed system, that there has been what you would call external uh. intervention. And, uh, you know, so there are many things that if we apply science, we cannot understand. We've discussed some of them. The, you know, the, there are things that have happened in the universe, uh, like the origin of the universe, like the design things that we've been talking about. When you apply science to those, the science of design, it leads us inevitably, if you're going to do proper science and not just be satisfied with little stories, but proper science will drive you to the conclusion that there has been external intervention. Mm. And so for that reason, uh, I do not see science, in fact, far from science, conflicting with belief in God. I think it actually should drive us mm. to believe in God. Thanks very much. Uh, and just to add to that, I think if you go back the other way and go back to the birth of modern science, what you'll find is a lot of them were committed Christians, and it was because of their belief in a rational creator that, that gave them confidence that when they looked at the universe and looked at uh, biology and, and physics and chemistry that they would get um, a regular law-based system that makes science possible. So it, it sort of works both ways. Um, okay, well, let's move on um, then to think a little bit then about if there, if there is a creator and if that's the conclusion that we are to draw when we do science, when we look at the universe, um, what, what might that creator be like? Um, and if there is a creator, would we expect him to actually communicate with us or, or try a, and um, reveal himself to us? So um, the guys on the Wednesday evenings, there's been a, re a range of, of different answers. I guess the most common has been that, yes, there, we may acknowledge that there must be something out there, but um, it's, it's probably a powerful, intelligent being, um, but certainly beyond our comprehension. Um, or another conclusion might be that, yes, there is something, um, but what you call God is, is really uh, the force of life that takes um, part of, of each of us, and we're all part of it. Uh, so that, that, that's two very common answers that we, we hear when, when we think about, well, if there is a, a, a creator uh, or a, a God, that's what it must be like. How, how would you answer those, that question, Gareth? Yeah, well, I'd like to think if there is a creator being that, you know, he, she, or it has actually communicated, I think, when I look at the world, again, thinking my inductive own experience, I see a lot of things that I think 
well, if this has been created in this way, surely this person or this entity would want to communicate something with me. Um, you know, you look at the world and you see that, you know, we have thumbs that can grasp things. And this probably is one of the single best things that we have that allows us to build. It allows us to do intricate things. It allows me to play the piano. Um, it allows all sorts of things. And I think, well, you know, that simple design feature has actually unlocked a huge amount of stuff that humans can do. Um, I'm sure some of you might have seen on YouTube this sort of modern-day caveman who is trying, I think he's in the Bronze Age at the minute, but he basically, you know, living with nothing, going out into the Australian bush and saying, what does it look like to actually survive? And, you know, he builds a bit of a hut and he makes fire and he catches animals and he, he creates and designs things just with the materials that he's found. I would not survive two minutes in something like that. So for me, it's a wonder that humans can actually build cities and cars and computers and compose music, um, you know, all, almost out of nothing. And it's not that there is creating something out of nothing. It's the fact that, you know, a lot of the ideas that are there, um, flight, for example, we get the ideas from what we see in nature. There's really very few things that are not already existing in nature in some form that we haven't been given an idea, scientists, engineers, whatever, to use. And as Danny said, often, you know, there are pay limitations of the real thing. You know, the answers are all there. How do things repair themselves? How do we actually get a green, sustainable planet or world? Well, you know, our heart beats two billion times, you know. It can sustain itself. So there's a lot of stuff we can learn. And I think going beyond that, it's to think, well... Are there other things we can learn about a creator? I wonder, does the creator have feelings and emotions? This is a big part of who we are. We're not just machines that are responding to, you know, somebody pokes us and we move away. We feel a sense of injustice. And some of those emotions and feelings of injustice can actually transform whole societies and how whole societies live. To me, it's a little bit like, yes, we have a biological code, this is how we're made up, but we also got these other things added into us, the post-it notes that go, when somebody hits you with a stick, don't just run away, actually demand justice, create a system that means people don't do that, and this is what we see in human society. So I think there are things that we can think about a creator where there's feelings and emotions, a sense of what we feel is right or wrong, and what is right or wrong anyway. Mm. Um, and then I wonder, does the creator expect us to make good choices and shun bad ones? How would he communicate those things to us? When we do something bad, we can often feel we have a conscience, we feel guilty. Is that some sort of divine fingerprint that makes us think, where is that coming from? And I wonder, is there a part of me that is more than just my body and my mind that somehow can have an interaction with this creator? A creator, yes, who loves to make things, but also the intangible, the abstract concepts, ideas that we often uh, think about. Is there some way that I can communicate with the creator that way? So those are some of the questions that I think we can get answers to. Yeah, yep. so <coughs> Danny, maybe some thoughts on that question? I remember when, just thinking back to the group that I was in that was discussing this, um, some of the people said we had never even thought about these questions before. So mm -hmm. I appreciate that for some of you, it may seem very strange even to think about these questions. Um, maybe depending on the culture that you're brought up in, you're not encouraged to ask, like, where did I come from? What am I here for? 
you just get on with your life. So if you find this difficult and a bit abstract, that's okay. But maybe one of the purposes of tonight is to start you thinking uh, about these questions. Now, I, I know Robin has been encouraging you to do that very kindly, but um, very consistently he's been encouraging you to, to start thinking about this. So just, I just wanted to say, mm -hmm. Tim, if you find it unusual to think about these, well, we understand that. Um, but on, I'm just looking at the second part of the question. Would you expect such a creator to communicate with us? Uh, as part of our work on speech processing, where we're trying to analyze, if you like, how the brain uh, does speech processing. And if I can remember correctly, the cerebral cortex where a lot of this takes place, there's something like 14 large nerves, very large nerves come out of that. And if I remember correctly, six of those are purely to do with speech. So someone, uh, a major uh, evolutionary uh, linguist uh, heard give a lecture, said we should not be called homo sapiens, we should be called homo loquens, because the thing that distinguishes us from every other animal is our ability to speak, to understand speech, mm. which is very, very difficult, and to reason about what we hear and about what we say. Those are fundamental things. They make us unique. Now, I do ask myself, if there is a creator who made us, did he just do it for fun? Did he just put all these things in, like speech and so on, just to see, well, it's a nice machine, you know, that, that works quite well, or was it for a purpose? And I find it interesting that in the very first page of the Bible, when God was creating it, it says repeatedly, and God said, God is a God who speaks. So I say, well, why has he given us such a sophisticated mechanism for listening, for reading, for understanding? He says elsewhere in the Bible, God says, come, let us reason together. So th these things, putting two and two together, it suggests to me that if you look at what is unique about humans, it is particularly our ability to communicate and to reason. Not just with one another, although that's great, but I wonder, is it so that we can communicate with God? We can read what he has written, we can understand it, we can reason mm -hmm. about it, we can speak to God, and he hears us. It looks to me like we have actually been designed to communicate with God. Mm. Yes, and that sort of narrows this down a little bit more and brings us more uniquely to the message of Christianity, um, because we started this evening by singing that, the, those great words, you're the word of God the Father, and that of course is speaking about Jesus of Nazareth, um, and that's where we come, really this, uh, the previous questions are sort of preparation, uh, the trailers if you like, and then the, the, main, the main part of the movie is coming to ask that question, how then has God spoken, how God, has God communicated with us? And we've sung it this evening in Jesus Christ. He's called in the scriptures the Word of God. Um, and so that takes us then to, to, to question five. Um, and I believe this is the one that will be dealt with this Wednesday evening um, as the series of the big questions continues. Uh, so, so many throughout history have, have, have claimed a point to truth, but, but Jesus Christ um, is the one who claimed to be God. Um, so, what reasons might one find for believing um, 
his claims to be true. I think we need to find out what exactly are the claims of uh, Jesus. I think if you were coming to Northern Ireland and you had no exposure to Christianity, you might hear about Jesus and you might see some pictures in some churches or books and think that Jesus was a blue-eyed Western male. Um, Jesus wasn't. Um, Jesus was a man from uh, Israel, from the uh, Middle East, uh, 2,000 years ago. Um, he wasn't a Westerner. He was a, a Middle Easterner. He was a poor carpenter, and he lived for 33 years. So whenever people come and they see Christianity, maybe, for example, as I was to go to another part of the world and see Buddhism or Hinduism, it would be unfair of me to judge those philosophies, those cultures, those religions, just in what I see. I would need to get down deeper. Like a scientist, I need to say, what's going underneath the surface? Um, We need to take away a lot of the cultural aspects of Christianity that are seen in the West that may not reflect who Jesus is or what he said. So for me, there's there's a few things that, that really speak very powerfully to me about why the Lord Jesus Christ is such a unique person. I grew up uh, not in a specifically Christian home, but a very good home where I was encouraged to um, go to um, sort of Sunday school where we had children's stories about the Bible. And as I read the Bible, there was nothing more that I could add to Jesus's words or his idea of good and bad, um, his conception of God, um, how God is a God of love, but also a God of justice the ways in which he reached out to uh, women and the outcasts who were often the peripheries of society and showed up people for their religious hypocrisy. As I began to read that, I thought, this really chimes with how I I see life and how things are. As I began to read more about the Bible, I found that Jesus said that all of those things in the Old Testament, written hundreds of years before him that the Jewish religion follows, he said, all these things were actually about me and only makes sense because of me. And I'm thinking, how can you take, um, you know, 39 different pieces of writing over a period of a thousand years that were written and actually make a coherent story of them that focuses on you, a poor Jewish carpenter, and launches a religion that is followed by perhaps upwards of one and a half, two, two billion people in this world? So I think, what is it about this man and he said, that actually brings all of this stuff together and makes sense of it. Um, you know, when, when Paul, one of the earliest um, proponents of, of Christianity, who took this message beyond its Jewish context, he came across some Roman authorities, and their conception was, um, yes, Paul's talking about some dead man he claims is alive and some controversy amongst a, a religious sect. And some people can think of Christianity about that. You know, Christianity is about following some teachings of Jesus. And they don't go beyond to see the claims that he made for himself. Or one of the biggest things being the fact that Christians claim that Jesus rose from the dead. That there is actually an empty tomb. There is an historical account of a crucifixion, a death. And there's now an empty tomb. An eyewitness, a series of eyewitness accounts that needs to be explained. And in fact... I think, for me, one of the things about what the Lord Jesus inspires as people is not just a, a vague fuzziness about doing good to other people, but it's a really serious engagement with how does this impact my life as somebody in the workplace, as a member of the family? How does this help me to wrestle with the big questions of life, philosophy, ethics, art, science? 
When you read serious Christian books or serious Christian biographies, when you come to churches that believe the Bible and want to teach it, we seek to try and match things up. We're not saying, look, there's some difficult things, we're just going to ignore them. In fact, some of the passages of Scripture we've read in recent months in Revelation or where um, Alan Wilson took us through one of the Psalms that seems to have God in a very vengeful spirit, and he explained that, Christians actually take the message of life seriously and Jesus seriously. And what's more for me, they all stand up to scrutiny. I have not come across, and I'd be interested if you have, any person, any religion, any philosophy, any idea which is a more noble conception of God the creator and has much more to offer positively for the way that we live our lives, for our own good and for the benefits of other people. That doesn't prove Christianity is true, but for me it's a big evidence that it makes sense. Yeah. So you've got what Jesus says and how that makes sense of the world, and you've got the, uh, the, the, the prophecies of the past that he fulfilled, and then you've got the evidence of his own death, burial, and resurrection. Um, Danny, anything yeah, just, to finish, just up? Just finish bit, on this question? Just add a little bit to the, one of those. The, the identity of Jesus, is he the Son of God? Has he been, was he sent by God with the authority of God? It is a crucial question. And Jesus warned the disciples, you know, don't listen to just anybody. People will come in my name, he said. So we've got to test it very carefully. Let me give you an example. Supposing at the end of this service, a gentleman came to me and said, I am the Chinese ambassador to the UK. I speak for the Chinese government, and I want to have a word with you. Now, I would be very honored. I would probably be a little frightened. But one question that would go through my mind is, how do I know he is, he is who he says he is? Is it just Jay dressed up? Uh, or is it genuinely someone sent from the Chinese government? What would, can, what would give me some confidence? Well, one thing that would help, and which is standard practice, is if I'd had a letter in advance, an official letter from the Chinese embassy saying, there will be our ambassador coming one of these Sunday nights to meet you in Crescent Church. If I had that preparation, then that would convince me it's like a, a, a separate source of authentication. If it described what he looked like, as it might do, how he would be dressed, well, that would be even more helpful. Now, of course, all those could be faked. Mm. Uh, that's, that's true, <coughs> but it would still give me more confidence at least to listen what he had to say. Mm. And if what he said was the sort of thing that uh, the Chinese government might say, you know, it would just build confidence. Mm. Now, that's why when Jesus came, it's so important to realize that there was advance information given, mm. sometimes over a thousand years before Jesus came. But some very detailed things, 700 years, where he was born, who his ancestors would be, and in particular, what other people would do to him. Mm. Now, that's really important because you could not accuse Jesus of going around looking at the Old Testament predictions and saying, I'm going to fulfill those, and that will convince people that I am the Messiah. Most of the predictions were about what other people did to him and things outside his control. He could not arrange where he was born if he was just human. Uh, he could not arrange his ancestors. But even when he was being killed, 
there are immensely detailed descriptions, even to the extent of people gambling for his clothes, uh, piercing his hands and feet, the details that he could not have fulfilled himself, mm. and yet they were there in advance. Mm. So those are the sorts of things that give me real confidence. Those could not have been set up. Mm. Those could not have been faked. Mm. Uh, and so that's one of the reasons uh, why I would take Jesus to be who uh, he was claimed to be. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you both. So <clears throat> uh, hopefully that gives you a flavor um, of the Wednesday evening series um, that is going on here at Crescent. There's two more, two more weeks. Um, they have sort of covered the first four questions that we have, so you can jump in now on Wednesday evening at 7 o'clock uh, and get the last two. So hopefully that's helped you to, to sort of see that we really do welcome um, any questions you might have. Um, and uh, although we may not address some of these bigger maybe more scientific or philosophical questions every week. They're important questions, uh, and we do welcome them. So hopefully that's given you a flavor of that there is um, evidence when we look at the world that points to a creator. And when we look carefully, that creator, we would expect to be a creator who communicates. And we, when we look at the scriptures and we look at Jesus Christ, he claims to be the final and full communication from the God of heaven. And it's all internally coherent, uh, and ultimately, it's life-giving. So um, thank you, Gareth. Thank you, Danny. I'm going to invite the, the band back on stage, and we're going to conclude with uh, a final hymn. The um, final hymn is, My Heart is Filled with Thankfulness. So that's one way in which we can respond uh, when we think of some of these big questions and the answers, uh, it, both in... Uh, the world and creation that we look at it in the scriptures and in Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we are thankful this evening for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that um, he was the culmination of what we were thinking about this morning, your mission to the peoples of this earth. And so from whatever tongue, whatever nation, whatever culture or background we are from this evening, we thank you that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And we pray that our considerations this evening would help us uh, approach uh, your truth, the truth found in Jesus Christ. So we commit ourselves to you, uh, to the work of your gospel, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. <laughs>